Welcome to Failing Forward. This is Care of a Thousand Papers, part two, where Victoria Palmer and Puji Pugiono talk about localization and how once you're already in a crisis, you can work better with local partners and make sure that you're supporting them the way that they need. So my name is Victoria Palmer. I'm a humanitarian monitoring, evaluation, accountability and learning specialist, and I work with Care Canada. Right, and uh, my name is Puji Pugiono. I'm the uh, senior advisor to a local NGO in a village in Yogyakarta, Indonesia, uh, named Pujiono Center. And I'm one of the proponents of the uh, network of networks uh, in Indonesia that's called Sajajar. Uh, my name is Disha Marianti. I am assistant to senior advisor of Pujiono Center, which is uh, Puji Pujiono. So some of the things you've talked about are how we weren't really prepared for this. We didn't have partnership agreements in place. We didn't change our systems to make them lighter and less cumbersome for local partners. We didn't know how to set qualifications such that they would work for people on the ground. Those are all things that in hindsight, it's great to know we needed to do ahead of time. What about things that once we were in it, that we could change when we were in the middle of the crisis? And I'm, I'm thinking about that in the context of we're doing COVID response in 64 countries right now. And whatever partnership frameworks we had in place are what we have now. So how did you think about once we were in the middle of the crisis, how were we able to move past those challenges or what were we able to change? Obviously, I'm speaking on behalf of Care Indonesia, who were very much involved in this study. Um, you know, they were in an um, interesting position as well when the emergency happened because they were transitioning to become a national organization. So um, last year in August, they actually became um, Yayasan Care Peduli, which is Care Indonesia. Um, and I think during the initial response, what we saw was that, you know, in, that, in those first few months, they really needed to respond to the needs on the ground. So I think that this learning around um, the challenges they were facing around localization and working in partnership were kind of coming to the fore and people were kind of actively learning those, like learning, seeing the lessons as they came up and doing this study really helped to kind of define that and, and get it um, written down so that people could reflect and think about what needed to change. Um, as they moved into the recovery phase and they transitioned to become a national organization, which really gave them a time to think around, you know, their strategic vision and how they wanted to work. That was a real opportunity to take on board the learning around what had gone wrong in terms of working with partners and what could be improved. And they really made a, an effort to invest more in partnerships. So um, Care Indonesia now has a partnership strategy, which it didn't have before. And at the core of that strategy, they have gender as you know, the guiding um, value of care and, and the aim that we have for the people that we work with to really invest in gender equality and women's empowerment. So they invested in bringing on board a partnership manager, which was one of the key learnings from the research as well, that you really need somebody to drive this forward. So you need to have a strategic vision which kind of sets out what your goals are in terms of working with partners and where you want to go. And then a partnership manager who can really lead to make sure that happens and to make sure partners receive the support that they need. And they also put, they managed to secure funding for capacity building and working with partners to strengthen their systems and processes and skills, which is something that we've seen again and again is really a crucial part of working with partners. And so within this kind of overall vision that they managed to set out and managed to dedicate resources to, there was really dedication there to working more in strategic partnerships and long-term partnerships. So while in the Sulawesi response, they had to focus on 
short-term kind of sub-grants to partners just to get you know activities delivered on time and to meet donor requirements. Now that they have this longer-term vision, they can think about aligning with the type of local partners who really have the same kind of vision, who they want to invest in longer term, who they can learn from and work with equal way. So it's not so much just about delivering projects. It's really about thinking on those localization values. And they're looking at doing that within the humanitarian programming they have, but also on the development side. So trying to kind of bridge um, those two sides and work with partners in the different areas. So I think, I think they were able to do a lot and it was challenging in the initial response to kind of learn those lessons and get, and get that um, changed quickly. But as they moved into recovery, there, was a, there were a lot more opportunities. And we see that that's you know, really strengthening now the work with partners. Were there any things that the team was able to do that helped to get them into that recovery space or changes they were able to make relatively quickly um, to help address some of these issues that came from the fact that we didn't have the right agreements in place to begin with? I think, as I said earlier, at the beginning of the um, crisis, they found themselves at the at the peripheral of the programmatic select, uh, partner selection, if you like. But they're right there at the heart of the emergency. The local par- uh, local actors, local NGOs, uh, didn't really understand what's going on and and how it works. So they responded the way they they, they know it. They tried to attend cluster meetings, over cluster meetings, and just plethora of meetings and at the end they have a natural selection which one that they attend and pay attention to because they they also individually have limited capacity. The second um, coping capacity that they adopted was they tried to establish some sort of alliance and, and consortium based on their pre-disaster activities. So the environment organization would, would gather around environment issues, the women empowerment around women, children with children and what's not. And they tried to coordinate among themselves. Uh, using variety of funding resources that they do. The third uh, situation was that they become the subcontractors of national NGOs who act like a middleman from the international actors to deliver program. In that case, then uh, they end up having quite regimented requirements of the program implementation. And at times uh, in the studies, they pointed out that some of those requirements are really out of the league, like requiring family registration and national identification card amid displacement of this very, very chaotic situation was simply, and not to mention that some of the requirements came later when the uh, humanitarian community is already distributed. And then two days later, the uh, national NGO said, oh, by the way, we need to have the photocopies of the national identification card. Now, who on earth has the national ID in the displacement? And where did they, they found the photocopier machine in the middle of the uh, flood, earthquake, and liquefaction, you know? So these are some of the horror stories that came out in the, in the spirit of localization. And um, true enough, uh, when the uh, emergency, the highest uh, peak of the emergency is over and it, it's sliding slightly to recovery, then um, not so many players on the ground. Most of the NGOs would pack and leave, uh, and then their project expired. So the local uh, NGOs end up with half-done projects. They end up with uh, half-empty warehouses. They end up with hired vehicle with half-filled, uh, you know, uh, gasoline and what's not. And the sad part of that is that uh, they said at the end of the day, those communities that were assisted by the emergency response, who used to be a close uh, constituents of these local NGOs became alienated. They became strangers. Women association at the village that used to be working closely with women local organization 
depending on whether there is honorarium provided by the organizer of the meeting. So the, 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 the social fabric that used to be the basis of working at the villages now need to be reconstructed, need to be restarted and, uh, and uh, you know, reconditioned, if you like, simply just to go back to a level that allow them to undertake some of the uh, pre-recovery activities, uh, you know, to, to allow the community to look at what they need beyond the emergencies. Yeah, I was just going to add, I think the, you know, the reality of responding to the emergency and the urgency of the situation and the need to um, provide the relief that was so desperately needed by people on the ground meant that Care Indonesia, you know, did its best um, in terms of working with partners. And we definitely heard from local partners that um, Care was providing um, some good support um, in kind of practical ways to get the activities delivered, um, providing some trainings, um, orientation, listening to some feedback from partners. Um, for example, when they felt that some of our tools were too complex and too challenging, trying to whether it was reducing our reporting formats or, you know, taking on board the feedback that, that was received. So there was definitely some progress made in that kind of practical way as much as the team had the bandwidth to do that. But I think in terms of, in this review, we tried to look at the localization commitments from the Grand Bargain, the Charter for Change commitments, which CARE has globally committed to. And those are the things that need that kind of longer term strategic vision, which there just wasn't space for in the you know, the hectic first few months of the response when the team was just trying to meet those basic needs. That was the thing that took a bit more time and would ideally be, should be thought about before an emergency. So in this situation where care hadn't um, been able to put that the time in beforehand, it was really limited in terms of the ways that we could work in partners, which allow us to kind of meet those commitments. One of the things I'm hearing that I think is really important is in addition to doing as much of that forward thinking as you can and putting in place partnership strategies and, and frameworks and lighter tools and processes for emergencies, I'm also hearing this really important set of action points about committing to stay through recovery and committing to support local partners and not leaving local organizations holding the half-empty warehouse, so to speak. Um, is that once you're in the response, we have changed the way local organizations operate because of the influence we exert um, and that, that we need to plan for the long term. Um, and that's something that even if you are in the middle of a crisis right now, as many of our country offices are, that's something that you can still say is an action point people can take from now as they are planning for recovery and as they are planning for project closeout and shifting into a new phase of response. Are there other actions that you would recommend for other implementers based on this experience? One of the, in my view anyway, one of the centerpiece of this particular study of Care Canada and Center Sulawesi was the fact that, as it was true with many other localization studies, Many of the proponents embark on the study with rather tentative questions, like what is localization from the perspective of different actors? How does it look like and what's not? And then try to gather wisdom as they move along. Now, in this particular study, uh, Care Canada and Bujano Center, what we did was, based on the extensive literature studies of care practices and good practices from everywhere, we put together some sort of pieces you know, if localization looks like a human posture, what is a good head could look like? So we pick up from the Philippines. Oh, there has been a good operation and localization in the Philippines that looks like, a, you know, viable shape of a head of a human. In the case of the, the hands, oh, it was operation in Tonga, for example, and so on. So we sort of constructed a Frankenstein doll, if you like, of what localization is supposed to look like. And that allow 
us to imagine if an INGO such as Care International undertakes localization, what would it look like in terms of principles, in terms of uh, management, operation, and practical implementation and what's not. That serves as a benchmark for the localization, including their commitment to recovery. Maybe I just offer that one first and Victoria, offer to you on the transition to recovery. Yeah, but I think it's a really important point. Like this is what we saw in the study that although care has faced a lot of challenges in different contexts and we have repeated similar um, mistakes in different places, we do also have a lot to learn from. And maybe this is a key lesson for the organization that we need to be able to capture that good practice and then actually take it on board and learn from it and replicate it. So Puji mentioned the cases in Care Philippines and in Tonga. You know, Care did some really interesting or is doing some really interesting work with partners um, and is really working in a really um, creative way that sees us taking on a completely different role than we'd see in our direct programming and different to the way that we worked in Indonesia. So we tried to capture that in the report um, and build our recommendations around these good practices that we've seen and that we've seen really make an impact in what we do in emergencies. Um, and I think, I think there's something to be learned here around how we think of working with partners. And I'm sure it's similar for other organizations, but historically we've tend to see local partners as, you know, like a, an entity that can help us deliver on the project that we've committed to. Um, and then we see them as something that needs to be managed because there's also risk associated with that. Um, and you end up seeing finance teams and compliance teams taking on the management of partners. And what we're starting to realize now and what we've seen within care and the places where we work really well with partners is that actually in order to achieve our broader mission and vision for the organization in terms of gender equality and um, gender and emergencies, we actually need to work with partners. We need to work with women's organizations. We need to work with women responders. So we can't deliver on our vision and achieve the vision that we have without those partnerships. So it kind of moves that from seeing partners as something that is a risk that we need to manage to partners who are like an essential ally in what we're trying to achieve. So I think there's a lot to learn there between how we manage partnerships within the organization and what, we, what we're looking to get from partnerships. And we made a recommendation in the report, we should see finance and compliance people working more closely with the program staff to really come together to understand how do we accept different levels of risk and accept that we need to take some risk in order to achieve the vision that we have as an organization. So I think that's something you know, interesting and quite exciting that we can learn about. Um, I may add that um, in the course of undertaking this study, we also organized a focus group discussion with fellow INGOs and local partners. And one of the important lessons that we gained from that conversation was that many of the INGOs and Care International is not an exception, do have developmental programs. INGOs have commitments to sustainable development goals and, and we're a wide variety of programs. And Care International has been known, at least in Indonesia, as an organization that uh, advanced gender, women empowerment in the development programs. But what was recognized in the focus group, group discussion was there was a disconnect that when emergency happens, as if it was totally new game in town with very little, if any, reference to the existing programs in the country. Uh, new managers are coming in, new programs are coming in and doing almost exactly the same like other INGOs. And that's, I think, where the strength on gender and women empowerment was lost in the, in the, in the response. 
And the second consequence is when the program scales down at the end or the, the winding end of the emergency, many of our NGOs would find it difficult to have a landing path, if you know, if you know what I mean. Which story could be different if they could have scaled up their normal development activities, if they have equipped the local partners with some humanitarian knowledge and skills, for example, they could scale them up to response. And uh, in the meeting, they realized that they could have used the same mechanism to scale down the emergency response and slide, at least with less problem, if you'd like, into recovery and finding and leveraging the nexus on the development. I think that, that that's an interesting lesson that, that we gained from this study. That's really interesting. One last question I have for both of you is how does this, how can we use lessons from this experience, from the challenges and and from the report that you did to save lives now? We've got humanitarian response happening all over the world. And in a lot of ways, it's happening under these same restrictive conditions because of restrictions on mobility. So how do some of these lessons help us um, save lives that are at risk today? From local perspectives in Indonesia, what we saw happening is that this is a crisis that we have never seen in our generation, both in terms of the depth and the scale and the complexity and how deep it influenced our society. In the case of Indonesia, what we saw, there is no major international as we used to see it in natural disasters. There is no big narratives among NGOs and the UNs and others, uh, particularly those who are outside of the country. And we suspect that it's because everybody is busy with their own backyard, I suppose, if not with their own houses. There is no aggressive deployment of humanitarian assistance. There is no wave of appeals showcasing the disasters and not. And the humanitarian system was sort of, yes, it's there, but it's not in a core because the effect is so comprehensive. That being said, out of the localization studies that we have in Indonesia, we quickly realized that out of necessity, out of pragmatic consideration, we really need to organize ourselves. So what happened in Indonesia is that Pujano Center, together with other INGOs and CSOs, quickly established a network of networks. We have 25 national networks from all sectors, from environment, health, women, children protection and what's not. And we have now 600 NGOs at sub-national level in our network. And we, we meet every week over online. We undertook training, uh, topical training every other week and so on. So in, in a way, we are setting the agenda in Indonesia. And we position the UN, or at least we regard them, the UN, INGOs, the clusters as resources. Instead of the one that calling the shot, now we are the one said what we need. Just yesterday, we had a webinar number 11, in which we titled it as Marketplace of Products and Services of the National Clusters, in which we request we requested the cluster to show uh, what kind of products and services they have. And we let the local NGOs to pick and choose what they need, sort of going to department store, if you like. You know? So no longer I NGO pushing the agenda. We ask them, okay, you stay there and show us what you can do, what you have, and let our local colleague now decide and call what they need. Uh, just tell us who your focal points are. We make further contacts later and what's not. The local NGOs are now banding together into sub-national network. We endorse them to local government, their working relationship, and at the national level, we do the same. At the same time, 
we raised up the, the, the stake of the localization. We were involved in regional conversation with colleagues from the CSO network in the Pacific and in Africa just last week. And next week, the uh, Sajajar network of Indonesia, this is, a, this is a new outfit that we formed for the last uh, two months, will be organizing a webinar inviting CSO networks from ASEAN countries. We are the one who invite IGFA. We are the one who do invite the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And we are the one who invite ASEAN Secretariat. And we are the one who invite uh, other international colleagues as speakers to join in in our conversation. So I think what we see is uh, really a broadening uh, or filling up the gap that's present itself in this COVID to that. That's one. The other interesting aspect in our view is that what used to be just simply conversation among humanitarian actors at the national and local level now becomes so broad. As I said earlier, it involves colleagues from environment, from the public health, the medicines, and, and so on. There is a, it's a good mix of people. Uh, beyond humanitarian now. It's almost like the natural transformation of what used to be humanitarian to become a more wholesome nexus of development in humanitarian. And the third one is that we capitalize on the past emergencies. Like in Central Sulawesi, with whatever is left there, or transition to recovery, we capitalize on, on that network that grew on the field and uh, get them to become one of the viable provincial network in this new theater that we, we mentioned earlier. Are there any final words that either of you would like to share with people who are listening today? I think as Puji mentioned, this current response, the COVID response is, or the situation is really unprecedented in terms of, you know, humanitarian responses that, that we've had to deal with before. And I think as Puji mentioned, it's really showing that the INGOs can't be present in the same way that they might have been in the past. So really showing the relevance of the grand bargain commitments on localization, that those are really hugely relevant and will be more and more relevant as we move forward. I think that the fact that INGOs are facing so many constraints just really emphasizes the point that, you know, it is local partners who are expected to deliver a lot of the response and, you know, thinking that you can't have internationals kind of flooding into or expat staff coming in to, to take a lead on the response. I think for organizations like CARE, this COVID response really emphasizes that it's not enough to say that we're committed to the localization commitments and the charter for change. We need to start actually making that happen. So I think it's, I think there is a lot that we can learn from the places where we've been working well with partners, as we mentioned before, and there are some really practical things that people could take on board if they're working on the COVID response right now with local partners, especially if they're having to work remotely or, you know, work in different ways. We capture quite a lot of that in the report, but thing, I'm thinking about things like in the Syria program, they have, they defined a list of roles and responsibilities in terms of who talks to partners about different aspects of programming and who makes decisions. So I think there are some really practical tools that could be used from shared from one context to another to improve people work with partners in this kind of unprecedented response. Practical tools that, that could be used in, in the response if people are working with partners now, particularly if they're working remotely and just learning from what we've seen in Sulawesi, but also in other contexts, some of the challenges that we face in terms of defining like how uh, an international organization, how care works with partners, there's something really key about the ways of working and the ways of communicating and making sure that partners have clear messaging from international organization. So things like defining who speaks to partners from, you know, which department, from which team, 
and what they're responsible for speaking about and what kind of decisions they're allowed to make partners so that, that so that there isn't conflicting messages coming from different people. I think there's some useful things there. In the Philippines, CARE has a set of protocols and templates which they use in different emergencies and the partners that they work with all know those templates and have fed into them and worked on them with them, but they're kind of streamlined and they're agreed by different partners and people are familiar with them and know how to use them you're not starting from scratch when the emergency happens but they've also put time into thinking around you know how you can cut those down to just key information that you need which is a requirement we're seeing a lot with the covid response that we just need to work on uh, what's essential and think about good enough approach so i think there's a lot that can be shared between different contexts great thank you both so much for participating today Thanks for listening. Join us next time on Failing Forward.